Hey folks, Joyce Vance here. Another busy week of politically charged legal news making the headlines. The Supreme Court heard oral argument in a case where Mississippi is asking the court to overturn Roe v. Wade. For now, the court's conservative bloc appears to, at a minimum, have enough votes to uphold the Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of gestation. In other news, the January 6th committee is still seeking testimony from former DOJ official Jeffrey Clark. Last week, the committee voted to hold him in contempt, but now Clark plans to plead the fifth in order to avoid answering questions. And a Michigan district attorney brought manslaughter charges against the parents of Ethan Crumbly, the suspect in the Oxford High School shooting. Preet Bharara and I discuss all this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the Insider community. The Supreme Court held oral arguments on the big abortion case, Dobbs, that we've been talking about for several weeks. Folks have probably heard how it went. It didn't go particularly well for folks who want to maintain Roe v. Wade. Agreed? Agreed. And and I would maybe say that as uh, for folks who don't think women should slide back into second-class citizenship. But, you know, that seems maybe a little bit picky. And do you agree that much of what was discussed was not squarely about abortion, but rather, particularly from the more liberal side of the court was about the nature of precedent, also known as the doctrine of stare decisis. And when you overrule a case or return something and when you don't, because that's the whole ball of wax here, right? I think that's right. And that was where the three liberal justices positioned their questions at argument. And in essence, and I know we'll talk about this in more detail, but trying to shame a couple members on the conservative side of the court by saying, what about the public's ability to have confidence that we're not just a political entity? Well, if you're going to mention that, we should read it verbatim from the mouth of Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who asks the rhetorical question and then answers it. She says, Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts. I, I, I don't see how it is possible. And she bases that conclusion and negative observation on the way that the conservatives on the court seem to be thinking about the case. So maybe we should go back to like sort of first principles for a moment. As I wrote in my note last week, if you're a legislature and you enact a law and then there are votes to repeal the law, you go ahead and do that. And it's not a big deal and nobody freaks out. You don't have to have any special reasoning or special cause. It's just the way the votes fall, right? And of course, generally, but certainly the Supreme Court, once there is a decision on the books, unlike with a legislature, you just can't undo it willy-nilly for a variety of reasons, among them that it would hurt confidence in the court, and then the court just becomes a lot like a legislature. If you have the votes, you can undo a case. If you don't have the votes, you maintain the case. And so, do you agree with the lawyers on the one side, on the pro-row side, who say the only basis on which you can overrule a case, overturn a case, 
as has happened throughout history, just as Kavanaugh pointed that out a number of times, is if something has changed, there's been a dramatic shift in law or fact. Did you hear anyone make an argument against that principle or suggest some radical change in law and fact from 1973? Well, let's start with the second piece of it, because the party that would have to suggest that there was a substantial change in facts or circumstances, that would be Mississippi, right? I mean, they're the proponent of this change. And so the argument that typically gets made here, and I think you're right, this is just first principles, is believing that a decision is wrong is not a sufficient basis for the Supreme Court to overturn it. There has to be, you know, the term of art, I think, is a special justification. And here, Mississippi not only doesn't offer a special justification, but to get back to Justice Sotomayor's argument, what Mississippi offers is the assessment of the legislators who introduced the bill, hey, we now own the Supreme Court, so let's pass this bill because it's time to to reverse Roe. And that's where Mississippi is positioned in the argument. Although, I think in a very, very strong way that it is illegitimate to overturn Roe under these circumstances. I think it's a pure power play. They have the votes on the court, and that's about it. However, the other side, the pro-Roe side, the side that you and I are on, is not perfect in its reasoning, because at least on one occasion, I think, I forget who the justice was, you'll probably remember, who asked one of the lawyers about the case of Plessy v. Ferguson, which I think there's unanimity that it was a terrible decision, and it was overruled by Brown v. Board of Education, by unanimous Supreme Court. And I think one of the lawyers was asked, on the basis that Plessy was a bad decision, could the Supreme Court have undone it even one year later? And I think the lawyer was forced to say, or was compelled to say, yes. I think it was Justice Alito. Does that make, does that ring a bell? I forget who the justice was, but he was questioning the Solicitor General of the United States who appeared as amicus. And she made the concession. Yes, bad decision. It could have been reversed a year later. That is one point sort of against the Roe folks who keep arguing, I'm just doing this for the sake of argument, who keep arguing that things need to have changed. There has to have been a dramatic seismic shift in law or fact. In that Plessy hypothetical, nothing would have really changed in a 12-month period. But I guess the, the reasoning is there are circumstances in which the argument must go that a decision is so heinous, so bad, so terrible, so contrary to the Constitution and to equality and or liberty, that it can be undone without dramatic change, and that Roe is not such a case. And here's the problem with that, right? You and I both believe that Roe is good law. If you're on the other side of that equation, if you're the state of Mississippi, or perhaps if you're individuals who have deep religious convictions and believe that personhood begins at conception and that abortion is innately wrong, then you might view Roe in the way that many people view Plessy. And so I've been thinking about that a lot, and the distinction that I have is this one. Plessy was a zero-sum game. Either black people were going to have the right to get out from under the separate but equal regime, or they weren't, right? It was either or. The difference with abortion is we're talking about balancing rights. And here, in my view, we have the the rights of women and others who would be forced to carry pregnancies for nine months and all of the attendant and collateral consequences of that. 
versus whatever right you might want to suggest exists early on in a pregnancy for a cluster of cells. And of course, later on, as you get closer to term, a fetus or even um, when birth is imminent, you know, what we would view as a baby. So there's that balancing of rights situation, which I think separates Roe from a case like Plessy or some of the other civil rights cases. That didn't come up in the argument. That's just Joyce. That's just Joyce. I'm always pleased to hear Joyce. Look, the other distinction that was made on one or more occasions, Justice Kavanaugh, again, arguing in this realm of when you overturn a precedent, he kept putting the question to the lawyers, what about Plessy? What about Lawrence v. Texas? What about some other cases that overruled prior Supreme Court precedent? And I think there was an exchange between Justice Sotomayor and the United States Solicitor General in which the SG said, you know, one major distinction between this case, this abortion case, and the raft of cases cited by Justice Kavanaugh is that in all of those cases, the overrulings took place in favor of an expansion of a right and the declaration of a right, whether it's a right to contraception or a right to counsel or a finding that separate but equal is inherently unequal. Here, per the pro-row folks, we're talking for the first time about overruling a long-standing precedent, some would say a super precedent, for the purpose of constricting a right. Do you buy that distinction? I do. I think it's a really good distinction, particularly in the context of the position that Justice Kavanaugh was staking out. His argument was, we shouldn't really be the deciding factor on abortion. The court should stay out of it, and we should leave this up to the states, leaving the court neutral. I think that argument probably sounded a lot better when he practiced it in front of his mirror than it sounded when he made it in the courtroom, because, of course, the court's job is to decide difficult issues, right? That's why they're there. And also this notion that relinquishing the responsibility to each of the 50 states, Mississippi being the one in front of them, the, the notion that that is neutrality is, of course, incorrect. That's picking sides inherently. So when he has this conversation with the lawyers trying to suggest that his path forward is the right one, it all happens in the context of what we clearly know is the position that he would like to see become the majority position, reversing Roe outright. Look, Kevin's not the only one. There are other justices who are on record. By way of background, remember we talk about not just the precedent of Roe, but the precedent from about 30 years ago of Casey. So it turns out that there is one current member of the Supreme Court who was on the bench back when Casey was decided, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, in 1992. And who was that justice? It was none other than Clarence Thomas, who dissented in that case, this precedent that you and I and others are arguing should be preserved. Even when that case was decided, Thomas found himself dissenting. And in his dissent, he argued, quote, very directly, quote, Roe was wrongly decided and it can and should be overruled, end quote. So he's been pretty consistent for decades now, and his vote is really not in question. You know, that's right, and it's really interesting in that context to remember that we've just had this conversation about changed circumstances that might justify reversing precedent. Well, in Casey, all of the same sorts of circumstances that Mississippi asserts were considered and rejected by the court as a rationale for reversing Roe outright. We get 
more nuance in, in how abortion can be restricted by states in Casey, which essentially holds that states have the ability to regulate abortion at certain points in pregnancy, so long as it doesn't impose an undue burden or a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman who's seeking an abortion. But it's at the point where Casey has decided that a majority of the court rejects outright reversal of Roe, and Clarence Thomas makes this very clear position, which we heard from him at oral argument. I thought it was interesting that with every new lawyer who argued, Clarence Thomas's first question to them was, well, where in the 14th Amendment's due process guarantee do you believe that there's a right to an abortion? I, I mean, I think he's going to say there was never a right to abortion. That was a bad decision by the court, and it's nowhere guaranteed in the 14th Amendment, whether it's privacy like the original Roe decision or liberty like the liberty interests like the Solicitor General maintained during this argument. The interesting question is how many more justices can he attract to his view? I think a bunch. But what you said is important. It's one thing for there to be a case, let's call it case X, that people think is badly decided, and that at some future point, case Y comes before the court, and the question is, do you overrule case X because you don't like it because you thought it was badly decided, or there have been dramatic changes in the law or in the facts? Well, this is not that. Here, you have case X, which is Roe, which people can argue about. And now you have case Z, which is this Dobbs case. And in between, in the intervening 50 years, you had a case Y, and that was Casey. And as you point out, we've been down this road before. There has been a consideration of the rationale of Roe and whether or not things have changed. And so in some ways, people argue that you don't just have Roe, but the consideration and deliberations that took place in the opinion, the majority opinion that was ultimately written in Casey bolsters Roe, making it even more damaging and more inappropriate to overrule. It's like the argument that you made last week. It would be so easy to do away with abortion in America if only we didn't have these, you know, almost 50 years of legal cases right. saying that the right it, it is made. Uh, this case is made hard only because of the presence of Roe. <laughs> there was somebody who tweeted... Climbing mountains is only made hard because they are so high and mountainous. <laughs> Breathing in outer space is only made hard because there's no air. <laughs> right? And there you have it. <laughs> it's a very blithe argument. Look, the other point is, as I mentioned last week, it reminds me of the Trump impeachment hearing. You see silly arguments being made and, you know, decent lawyers say, well, how could you make such an argument like Mississippi is making? Well, you can make silly arguments if you have the votes. That's all that matters, Right. That's what it is. And and there were clearly, I thought, three votes to overturn Roe. Thomas, Alito, and Kavanaugh. What about Amy Coney Barrett? You know, her position was, I'm trying to think of a word to use. I'll just say perplexing. She didn't seem to have much concern for the women who would be forced to carry babies to term because after going through nine months, they could just get dropped off at the local fire department under these safe harbor laws and turned over to families that were willing to adopt them. But that said, at least in argument, and of course we have to always issue the caveat, right? The justices are trying on arguments for size during argument, not always a good hint of where they'll land. Thanks for listening. 
To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.